0: The closing song the closing song as I've already mentioned we are in this closing section of Deuteronomy Deuteronomy 32 through 34 and incidentally what we see here in this closing section other than a paragraph of explanation here and there is in fact a closing song let me begin this morning by saying I've always loved music Good music doesn't matter the genre, and it doesn't really matter the decade. I've always loved music, and as I've grown older, I think my interests in music grow broader, although I always come back to rock and roll. And I'll just share that little tidbit. That's for free. But I, I do want to share with you one thing, and that is this. You know that if you go to a show and you watch a performer live, there's always what's called an encore. There's always what's called a closing song. It doesn't matter what the set list comprised. At the end, when they're done, they always leave you wanting a little more. And if you cheer loud enough, if you shout loud enough, they come back on and they give you another song or two. And perhaps this was most famously demonstrated by Old Blue Eyes, the chairman of the board. Thank you very much, Frank Sinatra. Everybody likes Sinatra, and if you don't like Sinatra, it's just because you don't know him yet. If you listen to Sinatra long enough, you find very quickly that there isn't anybody that doesn't like Sinatra. And it's pretty obvious by the fact that he has 150 million records sold worldwide, made up by hits like Luck Be a Lady. Can I say this in church? I think so. Fly Me to the Moon. If you haven't danced with your spouse in the kitchen to that song, I don't know. And of course, of the sadder genre, Send in the Clowns. Great song. But one song that he would more often than not be known for, and the song that he would more often than not play for an encore, was of course, My Way. And that song opened like this. And now the end is here. And so I face the final curtain. My friend, I'll make it clear. I'll state my case, of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full. I've traveled each and every highway. And what's more, what's more than that, I did it my. my way. Church, as great as Sinatra is and as wonderful as that song, My Way, is, especially as an encore, as we're calling it this morning, a closing song, I want to share with you this morning this fact. Say amen if you're listening. Moses' song is about God's way. He doesn't finish Deuteronomy by saying, Come hell or high water, I did it my way. I love some Sinatra, and I like some my way. But nothing flies in the face of the Lord than some lyrics that say, It doesn't matter if I'm going to die of cirrhosis of the liver. It doesn't matter if my family is broken into a thousand pieces because of the life that I have chosen to live. I did it my way. Church, this morning, what we're going to look at and observe is a lesson in the form of a closing song. And that lesson in the form of a closing song has as its principle this reminder. Your way is not the way. God's way is the way, and I think we see this by way of a couple points, and I want to share with you the first point this morning, which is this, the commission. This is found in 31, so I want you to back up just a smidge in Deuteronomy so that we look at Deuteronomy chapter 31, and as we address this closing song, the first thing that I want you to note is the commission. We're going to look at verse 16. If you look at verse 16 of chapter 31 it says and the Lord said to Moses behold you are about to lie down with your fathers now this is Moses growing old this is Moses coming of age. This is Moses having successfully lived a long life for the Lord and the good of his people. And as a transition is about to take place, Moses is told by God, Moses, your end has come. Jump down to verse 19, if you would. He says in 16, Behold, You are about to lie down with your fathers, verse 19. Now therefore, with this song, or write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths, that this song may be a witness for me against. The people of Israel. The first thing that I want you to note today, church, is this Moses takes the law, he practices the law, he takes the law and places it in the Ark of the Covenant. This is the safe place of all the holy items. We learned that Aaron's staff and manna and the tablets that kept the law were kept in this ark. If you know anything about Indiana Jones, no, I'm just kidding. Stay on track, stay on track. This is, a, this is a holy vessel, a special vessel that comprised and contained artifacts of the people of God as they collected them through the history that God guided them through. Now, Joshua is commissioned. Joshua is commissioned to be the leader who will take the place of Moses as Moses goes to glory to be with God. We talked about that last week. But in the process of this change, Moses is commissioned to write a song. God loves music. The Bible testifies to the fact that music is one of the arts that God has given to us to enjoy but also to employ for his glory. Psalm 100 verse 1 says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord. All the earth. How much of the earth? All the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness and come into his presence with singing. Come into his presence with singing. Music and singing are an important part of faith and the way in which God has called us to worship. In fact, say amen if you're listening. I would go so far as to say that because singing is such an important ingredient to our worship of God, if you don't sing to God, then you are forfeiting your growth in grace. You say that again. Because singing is such an integral part to our worship of God, if you aren't singing to God, then you are forfeiting your growth in grace. Now, some of you said, You can't make me sing. Fine. Fine. I don't parent like that. I don't pastor like that. If you want to catch an attitude and you want to say, try to make me, go right on ahead with whatever stubbornness and and disobedience you have wrapped up in your heart and have a merry time. All I'm telling you is what the Bible says. And the Bible says when you come to church, you should sing. Sing. Because God is worthy of your singing. And you say, but you've never heard me sing. I don't think he cares about that. I don't think he cares if you can sing on tune or if you can't find the melody or the harmony. I don't care if you can't play the radio. It's not relevant. What is relevant is this. Do you believe God is worthy of you raising your voice? And I hope your response to that is, you know what? Yeah. God is worth me being loud. Now, some of you plan this, and you say, what time does Joe go up? (laughs) And you come in after the music. Or you pull in the parking lot, you don't see my truck because we came in the Camry. I don't see Joe's truck. Is Joe Joe here? Because if we have a guest, I'm not staying. Listen, yeah. (laughs) That's, That's my guest. At the end of the day, this is not about me. This is not about you. This is why how well we sing is never described in the Bible. It says, serve the Lord with gladness and come into his presence with singing. It doesn't say, serve the Lord with gladness, and if you can sing well, sing too. It says that God is worthy of us to sing his praises, to say, thank you, Jesus, for the blood. Now, we may not sing that well, and I may say, you're not a good singer, but God loves your singing. You see, Moses has been commissioned by God to write a song that the people of God would remember and sing because God loves music. It is a means by which he connects with our hearts and our minds. And when it comes to worship, you and I should not remain quiet. I love what Psalm 34, verse 4 says, Magnify the Lord with me. Let us rejoice in him together. This idea that when we sing songs together, lifting up a shout of praise to God, this is both an Old and New Testament idea. I want to share a couple of verses with you. You can write these down if you'd like. Psalm 40, verse 3. Psalm 40, verse 3. It says, God has put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. You see, when God impacts your life, when you're saved, not only when you're saved, but when you're delivered and when you are empowered and when you are encouraged and when you are given wisdom, when he works in your life in the ways that only God can, a song is an appropriate response because he puts a new song in our mouths. Colossians 3, verse 16 Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That says rightly. That's not right. Although it says right, it's wrong. (laughs) It is rich. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Now get this, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, I want you to note one thing, first of all, and that is this. He doesn't just say hymns. He doesn't just say psalms. He doesn't just say spiritual songs. We need to understand and appreciate the fact that there are Christian songs, the genre of which we might not be crazy about. But you are not the arbiter of whether or not a song is Christian. I am not the arbiter of whether or not a song is Christian. What makes a song Christian is the lyrical content. Now, some of it might be bluesy, some of it might be rocky, some of it might be poppy, some of it might be hemmy. And some of you go, uh, far be it from us that we sing a song that was written after 1856. Some of the songs that were written before 1856 are trash. They're terrible. And some of the songs written after 1856 are trash. They're terrible. Some of the older songs are just magnificent. Some of the great hymns are magnificent. And some of the new songs are just magnificent. What makes a song a worship song is sound lyrical content. Revelation 5, verse 9. Revelation 5, verse 9. This is a glimpse of heaven. And the Apostle John writes what he sees, and he sees they, and he says of what he saw, they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, because you are slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. A beautiful song of praise sung in heaven about the redemption that God has provided for all tribes and all languages and all people groups through his Son, who is the Lamb. And what do we see? We see the people in heaven... Singing praises to Jesus. Church, singing is a part of our worship relationship to God. Now, we have singers on the stage, and we're grateful for that. We have singers in our church, and we are grateful for that. What is important is not whether or not you are in the pew or on the platform. What is important is your heart. Some of you say, well, I can't sing as high as Ellie or as low as Jan. It's not important. Will you sing for God? Will you sing for God? You might say, well, I've I've been in church for a long time and I have never sung a song for God. Start with a mumble. Do something, but do not put your heels in the ground like Frank Sinatra said and say, I don't care what your word says, God. I'm going to do it my way. No, church, I want to challenge you today to do it his way. I'm not wildly comfortable with this. Well, I want to challenge you even further and I want to challenge you by a point of application and I'm going to borrow this point of application from C.S. Lewis, okay? And he says something very beautiful in a book called The Reflection on the Psalms and I'm going to read this paragraph to you. I actually think I have it. Do I have it up here, Lou? I do, thank you very much. Okay, you can read it with your eyes as I read it aloud. It's a little funny to follow because he's English. Listen to what he says. The psalmist's In telling everyone to praise God are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. My whole difficulty about the praise of God depended not on my absurdly denying to us as regards the supremely valuable what we delight to do, what we indeed we can't help doing about everything else we value. I think We delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed confirmation. Let me tell you what C.S. Lewis is saying. When you finish that medium fillet, and garlic mashed potatoes and you put your fork and knife down, you don't go, let's go home. You say, that was good. And until you say, that was good, you haven't actually enjoyed it. That's what C.S. Lewis is saying. The natural inclination of everyone who has ever enjoyed anything is this. you got to hear this song. I love this song. you got to hear this song. Hey, have you seen the new movie? You've got to watch this movie. Hey, have you had a steak from this place? Best steak I've had in a long, long time. You've got to have a steak from this place. Our natural inclination as human beings who have enjoyed something is to talk about the enjoyment. Now, bring this application to your faith, and here's my question Why don't we talk about God more? C.S. Lewis is saying, How can we, as the most valuable thing we could ever enjoy, not talk about Him and talk about everything else we value? If you don't celebrate your joy, your joy is incomplete. If you don't celebrate your joy, your joy is incomplete. To put it plainly, if you don't sing praises to God, do you really enjoy him? Do you really know him? Do you really love him? Moses' sister Miriam was called a prophetess. In Exodus 15, she gathers all the people together and leads them in song. We see this in the history of the people of God. They sing songs to God. And in this instance, before the closing chapter on his life, God commissions Moses to do one final thing. He says, write me a song. Before you die and I bring you home, I want you to write me a song. Well, that's exactly what Moses does, which leads us to our second point. He's commissioned to write a song. No surprise, we see so much discussion on singing and worship in the Bible. God loves worship, and so we leave the commission, and we go to our second point, the chorus, which is found in chapter 32. Now, I want to just bring your attention back to this chapter, Chapter 32, and out of interest of time, I'm not going to read the entire chapter, but I'm I'm going to mention some verses that I would like for you to find with your eyes as I mention them. So our first point to note under this idea of the chorus is this. I want you to note the lyrical content. I want you to note, first of all, the lyrical content. Now I'm going to mention, as I said, some verses I want you to follow with me. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Next verse, verse 9. The Lord's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted inheritance. Verse 31, a little farther down. Their rock is not like our rock. Our enemies are by themselves. Verse 35, vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip. Verse 39, see now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. Verse 43, Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. Now, these are just a collection of verses from the song that I wanted to share with you because they bring to the surface and to our attention some things that I believe are important. And I want to just share with you a few of those ideas that present themselves here. One thing that we learn is that there is no God like our God. How's that for lyrical content? Our songs should be making a big deal about God and not a big deal about us. Now, there's nothing wrong with saying I in a worship song. Plenty of the songs, psalms say I. Plenty of the prayers in the Bible say I. But we need to be cautious about overusing that that individualistic attitude when it comes to worship. We need to remember it's about we, amen? We and us. But even further, we need to remember that we're not singing songs to each other. We should be singing praises to God. And in doing so, we are telling him that we believe and we are reminding each other that everybody's got a God and everybody's got a bracelet and everybody's got a candle, but nobody's like our God. Those people, he says, are alone, but our God is with us. Furthermore, he doesn't only just say, God is with us. He calls God the rock. The rock. And of course, there's a lot of significance to that title. It suggests strength. It suggests presence. It suggests you don't bump up against God and win. It suggests an enduring nature God is the rock. Some other things that we see is that God is without iniquity. In the song, we are reminded of this sound theological point, namely, that God is not a sinner. Everything God does is perfect, because God is perfect. And the sin that is in the world is not his fault, it's our fault. Amen? And we like to say, God, where are you? But God's like, I have never moved. You are a mess. I told you to do this, and you did that. I said, do that, and you did this. And that is why sin exists in the world, not because God is weak or because God is unloving, but because we are lying in the bed that we've made. But far be it from us to say, look at the mess you've made, God. No, in the course of the... Verses of this song, we are reminded that though we are sinners, he is not. We are also reminded of this very special point in verse 39. I'm sorry, not 39. 9, in verse 9, that God loves his people. The Lord's portion is his people. God wants his people. God loves his people. God does what he must as a savior, as a redeemer, as a justifier to bridge the gap between his people and himself. Finally, it closes in verse 43 with this beautiful reminder. Rejoice with him, O heavens, and bow down to him, all gods. He avenges the blood of his children Have you ever thought about this fact? I know if you're anything like me, and I know all of you are better than me, but just roll with it for a minute. If you're anything like me, if somebody bumps up against you, you go, you didn't just bump into me, did you? You know, if somebody puts their finger in your chest, you put your whole hand in their chest. I have a retaliatory attitude, but not worse than my wife. Wait, that's too much. Yeah. And I think it's part of our nature. She's Cuban. I'm Cuban. My dad is a football coach. You know, this is just our personality. Dimey is type A, high D. I'm type A, high D. If we see a problem, we're like, I can solve this problem. No, you don't know. I don't care. I'll solve it. This is just part of our nature. And when we come up against things, we have a tendency to go to our Rolodex to go to our contacts, to lean on our strengths or our experience, but everybody else just check out for a minute. I I need to talk to you for a minute. God can do it for us. That's what he's saying here. He avenges the blood of his children. Church, there is nothing that has ever happened to you, and there is nothing that ever will happen to you. The circumstances of which... God will not have your back. He will always have your back. God will always avenge his people. Now, you're, you're looking at a circumstance in your life, and you're going, I, I don't know, I don't, I don't know, maybe that one, but not no, 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 that's not how it works. We look at circumstances, and we say, these are the biggest challenges and circumstances I've ever faced but the lyrics of this worship song remind us that the circumstances that are large to us are small and insignificant to him. Why? Because he's the rock. He's never met a challenge that he could not meet. Solve. The reality of the matter is, is we paint the picture bigger, grimmer than we do paint the picture Of the glory of God. We should never be guilty of making our problems bigger than our God. The lyrics of this song remind us of a lot of different things. And one of the things that it reminds us of is that God will always have our back. He takes vengeance on his adversaries. And then I love this he says he repays those who hate him. And and get this, he cleanses his people's land. Can I I just mention what I think this is for the most part? God forgives. God forgives. And as often as we see God as a vengeful God, we need to remember that he doesn't have that vengeance for his people. God's wrath against his people has been solved by Jesus. So just as in this handful of verses we learn a handful of things about God, who he is, how our relationship should be to him, his posture toward the world, and so forth, so we are learning, this is the second thing I want you to note, something about theology, The lyrical content tells us things, but we learn, secondly, a note about theology, and there are a lot of things that Moses has tucked behind the lyrics of this song, and these things teach us a lot about God. We've already explored them, but I want to bring this to your attention because it leads us to an important point. The theological content of the songs that we sing matters. The theological content of the songs that we sing matters. In other words, when we sing songs to God, it shouldn't be about the genre or the style of the music. It shouldn't be about the business of the beat. We should sing songs because they're good theologically. How is a song good theologically? Well, for one thing, it must be biblical, It doesn't matter if this song at that verse rhymes with this line at the last verse. The rhyming pattern is not what's important. It must be sound theologically. There is a song that we do in our church from time to time, and it's a beautiful song, has a magnificent chorus, but I think the second verse is unsound theologically, so we don't sing the second verse, we sing the first verse twice. Does that surprise you? It shouldn't surprise you. We go line by line here. I'm not going line by line through God's gift to us, his revelation of himself, so that we could sing some song by some person who's going to be dead in 20 years. Now, the rest of the song is fantastic, it's great. But that verse is unbiblical, so we're not singing it. We're not compromising on biblical standards. Because a song is cool. It matters what we sing. It matters what we sing because God is an amazing communicator and He expects His people to understand what He has communicated to them and in turn communicate back with love and wisdom. Finally, we saw the commission. In the chorus, let's look at the conclusion. For this, I'd like to invite you to turn to Deuteronomy chapters 33 and 34. We're going to get to the conclusion of this magnificent book. And this is my 47th message, and I thought very long and hard about dragging it out so we could just make it an even fifty. But Advent is coming, and it's going to mess up my preaching calendar, so we're going to finish on 47. But if anybody ever asks you, are you listening? If anyone ever asks you, I heard you guys went through Deuteronomy. How many messages did Joe preach? What are you going to say? 50. Excellent. Let's go. Last point, the conclusion. So for this, I want to invite you to, to the very end of the book, chapter 34, and I'm going to read the first 10 verses to you. Deuteronomy chapter 34, verses 1 through 10. This is where the book ends. And this is a bit of a reminder of what we explored last week, namely Moses passing on his headship and leadership to Joshua. Chapter 34, verse 1, God's Word says, Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, all Nephtali, the land of Ephraim, and Manasseh, all the land of Judah, as far as as the western sea, the Negev, and the plain, that is, the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar. And the Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it, with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And God buried him in the valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth-Beor. And no one knows the place of his burial not even to this day. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. And then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended and Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And there was not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. First, I'd like you to note that our decisions and our actions have consequences. Our decisions and our actions have consequences. You may remember this from the book of Numbers, chapter 20, and it is a sort of recollection, the event is, of a previous event when they first left Egypt. When Moses led the people of God out of Egypt, they very quick became thirsty, and God said to Moses, strike the rock with your stick, and it will give forth water. He struck it with the stick, and it gave forth water, and the people drank and were satisfied. Time has passed. Years has passed. We find ourselves in the book of Numbers, chapter 20. And Miriam has died. I have no doubt that Moses is exasperated and depressed, dealing with the same human emotions that you and I deal with in the course of our lives, frustrated by a disobedient and stubborn people. And they say, we're thirsty, we're thirsty, we're thirsty. And he's trying to mourn his sister, and he's tired of leading them. And God says, speak to the rock. And he grabs his staff, and he strikes the rock Not once twice not once but twice and God has water gushing out of the rock to cover Moses' butt however when that situation comes to a close God says because you did not make me look special in the eyes of the people you will not enter The Promised Land. You see, church, our decisions and our actions have consequences. Moses was a man who, the Bible says, listened to God obeyed God, fulfilled the purpose of God for himself and for his people. The Bible goes so far as to say Moses spoke to God face to face like a man does his friend. All of these positive descriptions and qualities are given to us about Moses and his relationship with God, but Moses was not a perfect man. And on this occasion, the one that I referred to earlier, on this occasion, God disciplined Moses for not obeying him, for not making him look special in the eyes of the people, and the consequence of that disobedience was that Moses would not go into the promised land with the people. Now, let me share this small point with you. Say amen if you're listening. Here we are on the brink of the future, And God will not undo his discipline. Friends, the next time you are about to make a decision and you're unsure as to whether or not you should make this decision one way or another, remember Moses. Moses was not forsaken by God. Moses was not forsaken by God's people. For all intents and purposes, if we measured Moses' ministry and life, we would say it was an incredible success. But he made a decision that was motivated by temperament that dishonored God. And as a result, God never removed the discipline of that choice. Be careful what decisions you make. God may not remove the discipline that follows. Our decisions and our actions have consequences. The second thing I want you to note is this. I'd like you to note that the Lord showed Moses the promised land, however. That the Lord showed Moses the promised land, however. Look, if you would, please, at the text, chapter 34, verse 4. The Lord said to Moses, This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you and your offspring. I look. Look, this is what God says to Moses. I have, what is it? I've let you see it. Now, this is God's way of being gracious. This is God's way of being gracious. He couldn't and therefore wouldn't. Enter the promised land, but God gives him a glimpse. Standing there at a high point on Mount Nebo, overlooking the land, Moses got to see with his own eyes what God had promised his people before God brought him to glory. Let me say this, friends. There are some things that you and I might not see come to fruition in this life. There are some things that we might work hard for. There are some things that we might pray hard for that we do not see come to fruition in our lifetime. That does not mean that we should lose hope some things are not on our clock some things are on God's clock God always has a purpose and a plan and I can tell you this unequivocally and without hesitation that God's plan and God's purpose God's timing for a matter is always better than ours always it might not be comfortable but it's better It might not be encouraging, but it's better. It might not be what we want, but it will be better. Your work, invest in it. Your prayers, invest in them. I love what Paul says to the Galatians. He says, We will reap in due time if we do not quit. Don't quit. It will come to fruition. You may not see it come to fruition, but God might just give you a glimpse like he did Moses until the fullness of time has come. I want you to consider, if you would please, God's mercy. For this, I want you to turn to the New Testament. And in turning to the New Testament, I want to invite you to the Gospel of Matthew. And when you find the Gospel of Matthew, I want you to find Matthew chapter 17. And when you get to Matthew 17, let me know by saying Amen. I want you to read, beginning in verse 1 with me, please. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter. And James and John his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And there Jesus was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared with them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents, or booths is the biblical word, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And listen, verse 5, Jesus was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces. They were terrified. Jesus came, and he touched them, saying, Rise, Don't be afraid. When they lifted their eyes, they only saw Jesus. Because of the decision that Moses made, he was forbidden by God to go into the Holy Land. But wouldn't you know, a couple thousands of years later, God's son, Jesus, was in the Holy Land and when he was transfigured on the mount god said to moses now you can go now you can go so in his life he could not see the fulfillment of what he worked so hard for but in the glory and the plan of god he did get to go but not just with anybody with jesus and not just with anybody with elijah So we have the law with Moses and the prophets with Elijah, not just with with Jesus in the Holy Land. And not just the law with Moses and the prophets with Elijah standing there with Jesus in the Holy Land talking to Jesus. I love what Matthew says. Jesus was still talking to them. I don't know what they were talking about. I'm wondering. We don't know. We can speculate. Was Jesus saying, I'm going to start telling them about my crucifixion? I'm going to start telling them about how I'm going to be three days dead, but I'm going to be resurrected again. Was he telling them that? Was he telling them, Moses, Elijah, wait till you see what my father is going to do. You think what he did in your ministry was grand? Wait till you see what he does in mine. And then we hear the voice. We hear acknowledgement. We hear affirmation. This is my son. Acknowledgement. This is my son. We hear affection, in whom I am well pleased. My son brings me joy. We not only hear acknowledgement, we not only hear affection, but he finishes it with affirmation. Listen to him. He affirms him. Every time I think I have a situation figured out, ironed out, resolved. I think of scenarios like this, and it's like God says to me in that moment, whatever you think you can do, I can do better. The purpose of God will never outshine the plans of man. And how long Moses had to wait to step foot in the promised land. But when he did, he didn't do it with just anybody. He did it with Jesus. And that was a a way of grace, a way of reward, perhaps, that God gave to Moses so many years after his death. Well, to close, let me say this. Everybody loves a good encore. And maybe there's no better closing song than Moses' song that reminds us that there's no rock like our rock. There's no God like our God that encourages us to sing his praise and to trust in his plan. Regardless of what you might be facing, this much I know to be true. It all comes to fulfillment in Jesus. It all comes to fulfillment in Jesus. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, Moses was special, Elijah was important, David was significant, but no one matches our Jesus. Jesus, as the Son of God, paid for the sins that we ourselves could not pay for so that we could have a relationship with our Heavenly Father and our Creator. Not just here on earth, but forever in glory.